Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Great to see all of you. Thanks for joining us, navigating some marathon traffic or closures, potentially. Uh, It's good to be together. My name is Nick Elio. I am the Family Ministries Pastor, and I'm excited to be teaching this morning. Most of my time is spent overseeing our 0 to 18 ministries, which constitutes our Family Ministries, uh, which includes DCC Kids, uh, which is happening downstairs currently for those of you with little ones. Um, and that is some incredible childcare, and then also small groups and conversation and crafts and games and all sorts of amazing things that happen up to fifth grade. Uh, and then the majority of my time I spend with our students of Ink Student Ministries, uh, a few of which are here this morning. One of them said, say something about me. <laughs> I said something good or bad. <laughs> and um, that is an incredibly uh, fun season uh, if you remember middle school and high school. We have a couple exciting things happening in, in family ministries. The first is that uh, from a kid's perspective, we have uh, fifth graders that are enjoying their last Sunday in DCC Kids this morning uh, because once you get to sixth grade, you get to come and hang out with me, which means next Sunday is our Ink Summer kickoff. This is an annual time of welcoming our new families and our new sixth graders into our ministry, and they will get to spend the entire summer getting acclimated, getting to know us, spending time with us, before uh, we'll jump into sort of full-blown youth group on a weekly basis in the fall. Uh, And so two invitations to you in that. If you are a family, if you have uh, kids who have not yet experienced DCC Kids, if you have teenagers who haven't yet experienced Inc., would love to connect with you, would love to meet you. Um, If you have an incoming sixth grader and you haven't been getting my emails and the invitation to join us next Sunday for our Inc. Summer kickoff, um, I would love to make sure that you find out about that. It is happening right after church next Sunday. Uh, all, your whole family is invited. You can email me at nick at denverchurch.org. It's pretty straightforward, and uh, would love to get you connected in that way. And the other thing that's happening is that this is our annual season of recruitment for our leaders. It takes about 20 men and women, adults, to co-lead Inc. with me. And so we are looking for the next round of folks to jump in on that team And uh, specifically, uh, gentlemen, I'm looking at you. We are in the needs for some male leaders. The female side of the team is filling up uh, pretty quickly, which is fantastic. But um, if you have some sort of young life background, if you volunteered with kids, or maybe I love coming across the person who goes, you know what I needed when I was a kid? I needed somebody to walk through this season with me. And those are some of the best folks who make ink leaders, not the folks who had an amazing experience and always want to pay it forward. That's great. But the person who knows what it's like to not have that and decides to step into that space. And so um, come find me afterwards, email me, um, whatever it looks like for you to get connected and would love to do that. Uh, Before we jump into our teaching, uh, be remiss to not mention that we are yet again walking into this place with an insane amount of potential grief, um, being reminded of uh, 13 people killed, 10 lives lost in Buffalo, 
in what appears to be another heinous act of racially motivated violence. There's not a whole lot to say. It's not like normal part of the Sunday. We'll just put that in there. But if you're holding that, like we all are, like many of us are, just know that we hold that. We're aware of that. The communities, the victims, the families. And we have to reconcile this. We have to do something with this in our world. And so let's pray to start. And we'll begin our time of teaching. Father, thank you for this morning, for the time that we get to be together, and Lord, we pray for safety. We pray for safety in our world, for the places that we gather, for the fear that many of us hold being in places uh, where violence has been done. And Lord, we pray for changed hearts. We pray for your grace, your peace. Um, and that we might be able to be a healing presence in this world uh, because we know that it's not as it should be. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you or you didn't bring one, there's one of these black Bibles near or around you. And we are jumping into the next chapter of Luke. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, where we've been has been Jesus's baptism. Uh, And then if you're with us last week, uh, Paula Williams spoke on the genealogy of Jesus that's included in Luke's gospel. And so now we're jumping into uh, the next story that starts in Luke 4, chapter 1. Uh, If you have headings in your Bible, this might be under the heading, The Temptation of Jesus. So Luke uh, 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. He said, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of his attempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is an interesting story. We spent a lot of time at DCC looking at the historical context of of the Bible. We talk about the original language. You talk about the time and place it was written. We talk about what what words would mean to the original audience and and what Luke would have been wanting to get at with uh, the people that were hearing this. But this is a straight up like mythical cosmic story. God versus the devil. What are you picturing when you hear this? Is it something like this? This is a real life poster that you can purchase on Amazon. It is $12.99. And I think it's worth mentioning that the description says bedroom poster. So they want you 
not only to buy this poster, but they want you to hang it in your bedroom. I don't know if this will make you feel better or worse when you wake up. Is this what's happening? Some sort of cosmic battle between, between Jesus and the devil, some sort of personified version of evil who's red and he looks like an awesome lava monster. My eight-year-old would like love that. This is a weird, weird story. Some sort of cosmic showdown, God versus the devil, good versus evil, once and for all for the fate of the world type stuff. Which means there's a lot in this story that seems out of this world, hard to understand. Makes us wonder, did this actually happen? And if it did, how do we know about it? All of the other stories that we get of Jesus, he was around people. Jesus is alone in the desert for this story, right? He goes out and spends 40 days. So unlike the Gospels, much of which, much of which are observable moments. He's walking around talking to people. Obviously, it makes a whole lot of sense that people have been like, hey, did you hear that thing that Jesus just said to, to Peter back there? Like, that was pretty crazy. And that gets around and it becomes this thing and they write it down later, right? How do we get this story? Does Jesus come back from the wilderness knowing what we know about Jesus? Does this seem like him? Like, gosh, you're not going to believe what happened. I resisted the devil three times. And his disciples are like, no way, three times? He's like, yeah, he's going to give me the whole world. And I was like, I don't want it. Like, you don't want that? He's like, no, I'll get it later. They're like, awesome, dude. Like, what is this story? Where does it come from? That doesn't seem like something that Jesus would have talked about when he came back. Being somebody who, who earlier or later says, uh, hey, when you pray, pray in private. When you give, don't let other people see it. This doesn't, it seems like a showy story to come back and be like, guess what I just did? So what's this story actually about? And why do we have it? What do we do with it? It's worth noting that Michael seems to always go on sabbatical or not be around when stories like this come up. Last time I got the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the two people who sell all their stuff in Acts, and they keep some from themselves, and then they just die instantly. Michael was like, yeah, you can go ahead with that one, Nick. So, so let's see what we get here. First of all, there are a ton of connections in this story to the Israelites. Like so many stories in the Bible and in Scripture, there are certain words, phrases, terms, things that happen that when you hear them, all the lights on your dashboard should be going off. And this story is one of those as well. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert, which is supposed to make you think about the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert post-Egypt. And in those 40 years, we know that the Israelites lost faith. They rebelled. They, they gave up. They didn't trust God to get them through that time. So in this story, we see Jesus replaying the Israelites' time in the wilderness. So the difference is that he succeeds. He resists temptation. He relies on faith in Scripture. He becomes the one who will carry the Israelites' story forward from here. He can be what the Israelites couldn't and what all humanity could not be. And secondarily, it's, it's on the heels of Luke's genealogy. So there's, there's this connection back as well to Adam. So in all this, it points to Jesus as the new Adam to again be the thing that humans could not be to be the restoration, the redemption of the world, the undoing of the fall. So the new life and the redemption and the restoration that Jesus is going to bring to this world isn't waiting to happen just at the cross. It starts here, at the beginning of his ministry. And this story is the next step in setting the stage for who Jesus will be and will become. 
Back in February, I got to teach about teenage Jesus in the temple. And if you know that story, if you were here, uh, this is a, the idea was that uh, the story of Jesus, talking about Jesus' childhood, even in this one story, sets the stage for who he will become. Because certainly a person who goes on to do remarkable things in adulthood would certainly have done remarkable things as a child. That story helps set the stage, and so does this. It connects Jesus to all these important things for the Jewish people to hear that he's connected to Adam, that he's doing the things that Israel could not. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness or to the wilderness. And the Spirit is showing up all throughout Luke's gospel as well. It shows up uh, in Elizabeth's pregnancy. It shows up in John the Baptist. It shows up with Mary's pregnancy, with Simeon's prophecy, Jesus' baptism, it descends upon him like a dove, and here it's leading Jesus into the wilderness. And here's the thing about the wilderness or the Judean desert. There's nothing out there. This is a picture that I took just eight weeks ago to the day in the Judean wilderness in Israel. I'm convinced that the only reason that pastors go to Israel is to be able to do this. I took this picture in Israel. And I'm just going to name it because it's awesome. (laughs) Because I got to be there. There's nothing out there. It is desolate. This isn't like Rocky Mountain desolate. It is rocks. There's no like, it's not even dirt. It is dust. And you don't have to spend much time out there before you realize it would be a really hard place to survive for any amount of time. Or to realize why a very primary metaphor for God and for life and all the things that come from God is water. Because you need water. Water is so ubiquitous in our world. And yes, we're in a drought. And yes, there are wildfires everywhere. But we can go to the bathroom right now. You can fill up your water bottle. We can fill a basin with water to baptize. There is no water out there. This is a hard, hard place to survive. And this is where the story takes place, in the wilderness, in the desert. And Jesus is fasting. This is very much a vision quest, a rite of passage, some sort of initiation experience that Jesus is happening. This is the valley of the shadow of death, the dark night of the soul where everything you thought mattered seems to not. All the things that we use to tell ourselves we're okay and No matter what happens, I have that couch situation handled and all that falls away and we're just left with ourselves. No social status, no possessions, no identity groups, no bank account, no work of your hands. And it's in all that place that all of our demons come out because the wilderness is a mirror. Maybe you've been in this place before, which we're going to get to in just a minute. So what is it that Jesus is tempted with in this place? Three things, and I believe it's the same three things that we are all tempted with. He's tempted with pleasure, he's tempted with possessions, and he's tempted with power. He's tempted with pleasure, satisfaction, immediate gratification, his individual needs, his wants, his desires. You're hungry? Turn these stones to bread. Fix this problem. Get out of here. You don't have to feel this way. Make the pain go away. He says no. Then he's tempted with possessions, with stuff, the entire world, seemingly. 
This is one of certainly the most cosmic moments of this story. It says that the devil shows Jesus, quote, all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment, in an instant. How do you picture that? How would the devil have done that? How did Luke imagine that? What is he picturing? I picture some sort of moment, you know, very cinematic. The first, the first scene, you know, Jesus is in the wilderness there among the rocks, and in the next moment it flashes, and now Jesus and the devil are like floating above the earth, right? Just like in the edge of space, and they can see the curvature of the world. Well, that's funny to say. Luke probably would have believed the earth was flat at the time, so that wasn't what he was thinking. But he can see everything. And if you've watched Marvel's newest show, it's called Moon Knight on Disney+. Plus. Um, it's, really, it's really fun. Uh, the Egyptian god Khonshu, who's the, the god of the moon, has this moment where he needs to show, uh, he needs to show Moon Knight what the, the sky looked like 500 years ago. And he stands there and he starts spinning his hand and the stars start swirling. It's this really amazing visual of him turning back time. Is that what happens? Is the, is the devil doing some sort of incredible like fast forward through time and space thing where you know, temples and, and uh, empires are rising and falling, and Jesus is watching this whole thing happening. He goes, I'll give you all of this. And he goes, no, I don't, I don't want that. And it says that the devil has the authority to give all of that to Jesus. Does he have that authority? We know he's a liar, so is he offering something that he can't actually give? And then, of course, he offers power, fame, glory, influence. They're transported again to the Temple Mount. They're standing there and he says, throw yourself off here. God will save you. And then the devil himself quotes scripture. Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you so that you will not strike your foot against stone. Throw yourself off here in front of everyone in the busiest place in the city Can you imagine what sort of celebrity you would be to fall and then have angels swoop in and save you? You can do whatever you want. The fame and the power and the influence you could have would be out of this world. This is all the stuff that we want, isn't it? Nearly everything in our world could probably be manipulated to fit into these three categories on some level. Does that mean that all these things are inherently bad? Of course not. And Jesus will get these things in time on his own terms. But Jesus isn't about to sell out to the devil for a quick fix, just to be, to be done with this thing, for immediate gratification to get himself out of here. This is an initiation for Jesus. Again, some sort of rite of passage, the suffering and the endurance that he has to go through. And as we know, the only path to transformation is great suffering which is where Jesus finds himself. 40 days, no food, in the desert, with the desire and temptation, seemingly the opportunity to make it all stop. Probably even the power on his own. He doesn't need the devil to do any of that for him, does he? So what is his response to all of this? Yes, he turns it all down, but, but how does he respond in these moments, in these temptations, in these longings and desires to make this better? Well, the first is he, he quotes Scripture. Every one of those responses that that Jesus says to the devil is scripture. When he's put to the test and at the end of his rope in so many ways, he has to know and trust and discover who he actually is, what he actually believes. He said scripture memorized since he was a young boy. 
And now he's able to rely on it, to, to remind himself of what's true, to remind himself whom he is and to whom he belongs to. And then, of course, by the third temptation, the devil ups the ante and starts quoting scripture right back to Jesus. He's like, you want to play this game? I can do that. Which is a good reminder that just because something has a Bible verse on it does not make it good. It's during that third temptation when the devil says to Jesus, throw yourself off the temple so that God can save you, that Jesus says, quote, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't know about you, but I always, always heard that last response as Jesus sort of dropping the hammer, right? Like the last time I'm going to tell you, do not put God to the test. We're not doing this. And I think he is doing that. But in, in studying for this, I also came across this idea that you can read this in first person. Jesus is saying, don't put the Lord, your God, me. He's telling the devil, don't put the Lord, your God to the test. He's not saying don't test, tempt me to tempt God, which I love that so much. So yes, Jesus quotes scripture, but at the end of the day, by resisting temptation, he lets the pain and the suffering and the discomfort do the work on him. He goes on the journey. He doesn't pull the ripcord when he easily could have. He gives into this rite of passage and following his baptism, it's from the place that all of his ministry is launched because he comes out on the other side knowing who he is and what he's supposed to do. You can't go through an experience like this and not be changed. Race of passages and initiation experiences have pretty much fallen away in our Western culture. They barely exist. And as our family ministries pastor, it's been something that I've spent the better part of 10 years considering and working on as part of my job is to walk with teenagers through adolescence to help set them up for success in adulthood when they graduate or leave our ministry, which caused us to look at the state of adolescence in our country. What are we actually doing to help teenagers and adolescents uh, to succeed when they, when they move on? How are, we, how are we helping them prepare for the real world? Are we teaching them what they need to know? Just this tax season, I found this hilarious meme that I hope you'll enjoy as much as I do. Somewhere. Me, how do I do taxes? School, here's a recorder. Me, what's a credit score? Just put it in your mouth and blow like this. How do I choose the right healthcare plan? Hot cross buns, get with the program. What are we teaching our kids? And not just in school, obviously. This is a fun joke. Sorry, educators. My mom, who's like a 30-year educator, is really mad. Sorry. Um, how are we helping kids to know who they are and what they're about. The fact of the matter is that we're doing very little, to be honest. We have no traditional rites of passage in our culture. We have no initiation experiences that we all go through, no, no mandatory vision quests. At best, we have a few milestones that are marked by birthdays that you get to go through. At 16, you can drive. At 18, you can vote. At 21, you can drink and buy cigarettes. At 25, you can rent a car, finally. But these aren't based on anything. No maturity or experience, self-reflection or enlightenment. I mean, to drive, you have to be able to take a test, I guess. But if you fail, you can just do it again, and everybody passes. That's more like a survey or a questionnaire. That's not a test. 
But the rest of these just try to do the activity the day before your birthday and get a ticket or get arrested. But the next day, you're totally fine. How confusing is that? A couple of years ago, when we first started working on this, I was still bivocational. I was working at a restaurant, and I was working here at DCC. And I was telling my friend at the restaurant that I worked at, his name was Kevin, about what we were doing, about this rite of passage trip that I was going on in a few weeks with some of our high schoolers. And he was like asking me about it. He's like, why are you doing that? And I was telling him. And as I was telling him, it started to click. And he started to think about some of the things that have happened in his own life. And he starts telling me the story about how he was in college at the time. And just a few years earlier, uh, it was very not allowed for him to drink. Rightfully so. He was a minor. But that his parents were like, no go on drinking. No go on partying. It's not something that you can do. would get in trouble if they found out he went to a party, so on and so forth. Even after he graduated in the summer before his freshman year, can't go to parties. And then he moves up to Boulder, goes to freshman orientation, spends his first weekend at college, talks to mom and dad on Monday, and they go, how is it going? Are you having an amazing time? Have you been to any parties? What's it been like? And he's like, I'm watching the light bulb go off in his head going, that was so weird. All of the sudden, I can just do this thing now that, again, a week ago, I was living in your house, doing whatever I would have been in trouble for or grounded or whatever that might have been like. And now I just can. That's not an initiation. And we didn't, did, we, did they set him up to be successful at that? To know what it's like to even be at a party to make good decisions? Is it any wonder that we're seeing the things that we're seeing in the lives of our teenagers and young adults? There's certainly some sort of conversation around a failure to launch, around delayed adolescence. But what about the rates of depression and anxiety, suicidality in the next generation, the amount of loneliness and disconnection that they're reporting? The fact that more teens in America want to be a YouTube star than to be an astronaut. What desire is that? Why do we want that? Is this what we want for them? What are we hoping to give to the next generation? But the fact is, if you're an adult in the room, whether you're a millennial or a boomer or older, it's very likely, nearly impossible, I would wager, that you've been through a formal initiation process. I certainly haven't. But you're like me, and you hear this, and you go, we should do that. I want to help. We should definitely figure out how to work this in to what we're doing. And I think we, we can try for sure, and we should. But that's like asking the blind to lead the blind. The uninitiated are going to lead some sort of initiation experience. It's very, very hard to lead someone somewhere you've never been. When was the last time that you were in the wilderness for 40 days? The literal wilderness, maybe, to start. I mean, that would be a good place to start to engage some of this. When was the last time you had to consider your own mortality? Like, really, really? Had all of your worldly attachments melt away to find that everything that you thought mattered didn't and had to face yourself in the mirror not knowing what was next? How quickly did you want out of that place? What did you use to cope? Did you resist the temptation of pleasure, of perceived power and control? Did you stay long enough for it to do the work on you? The fact of the matter is we don't do this well. I don't do this well. 
And it shows the fingerprints of our pain avoidance and lack of initiation are all over our culture. Or said differently, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting. This means if you want to have what you've never had before, you have to do something you've never done. Years ago, as we considered what role our, our student ministry might be able to play in the lives of our young people and the potential initiation of teenagers, we looked at the history of rites of passage and initiation experiences. And there's a lot out there historically. Much of it involves sending young men out to face death, whether that be their own death or to, uh, or to, or to kill something else, right? To go and, and conquer some sort of beast and come back. For, me, for uh, females, initiation in almost every culture, the rite of passage that they go through has often been menstruation. So you'll forgive the lack of content around that. It was a far more natural process. It's, it's just not written about that much. Not in the same way, at least. Uh, but if you're familiar with Richard Rohr, he's a Franciscan priest out of New Mexico. He's written a number of incredible books and is often quoted from this platform. My favorite of his books is called Adam's Return. And he spent nearly 20 years studying the history and state uh, of male rites of passage and initiation experiences around the world. And he found, discovered, and curated what he calls the five promises of male initiation. Now, it's not that women don't have to go through these uh, promises of initiation. It's that they often do. <laughs> they don't get to avoid menstruation. You don't, you don't get to turn back on that. So in so many ways, their biological process tends to, to force this upon them. Women are more inherently wired to learn and understand this from a young age compared to young men who seem to need to have this seared into our consciousness. So the five truths are this. The first, life is hard. That might seem obvious, Humans have known this for thousands of years, but it's only in fairly recent history that we've been able to actually manipulate and control our world so much that it doesn't have to be that hard. And the temperature in this room is pretty nice. Food, water, shelter. We live in a world that actually isn't that hard. So when something happens, we go, why are there so many bubbles in my sparkle water right now? This is unbelievable. Pain is part of the deal, and we can't spend our lives running from pain. We can't get rid of our pain until we've learned what it has to teach us. The second truth is this. You are not that important. Every rite of passage experience is intended to bring the initiate to the place of recognizing their own limitations, only to affirm the infinite and unearned value and worth that you have. You're not that important for the reasons that you think you are. You're important because you're an image bearer. The next one is your life isn't about you. Once you've learned that life isn't about you, then your life can be the message through which other people experience some goodness. The fourth one is you are not in control, which is not a negative thing, but a, a thrilling discovery of divine providence, really. You are part of something greater than yourself, and you don't have to be in control of everything. There's freedom in that. The last one is you are going to die. As sure as taxes, as the saying goes. From dust you have come, to dust you shall return. Maybe the most important and life-changing realities of all. When this can be acknowledged, life can really begin. Maybe you've heard this sort of uh, life from death metaphor theme before. 
Imagine the type of whole person you would be if you had the opportunity with these five truths in your heart and mind to live in the world. Imagine the type of impact you could have. Jesus finishes his time in the desert in an initiation experience, then goes and begins his ministry. Because historically, initiation was not about the individual. It was about connecting the individual to a larger thread. It's about shaping the person into someone who can serve others, who can care for the community, who can serve the village. Francis Weller says it this way. In the indigenous context, initiation was never meant for the individual. It had nothing to do with personal growth or self-improvement. It was an act of sacrifice on behalf of the greater community into which the initiate was brought and to which they now hold allegiance. They were being made ready to step into their place of maintaining the vitality and well-being of the village, the clan, the watershed, the ancestors and spirit. It was never about them, but about the continuum of generations to come. This thought is very difficult for us to digest in our highly personalized, psychologizing way of thinking and perceiving. It's always about us, our wounds, our growth, which keeps us at the center of the wheel. Traditional initiation, in contrast, breaks us into a wider and more inclusive experience of self. We become part canyon, part meadowlark, part cloud bank, part village. We were made porous through these profoundly deranging experiences, broken open to allow ourselves to be penetrated by the holiness that pervades all things. Through this communion, we feel our kinship with the singing, breathing world and cosmos. We become immense and connected to the whole. We fall in love with the world and learn to protect what we love. This is the experience that Jesus had. And in the tradition of following our rabbi, it's what we are invited to participate in as well. I don't know what you came in with this morning. I don't know what you're holding, what you're fighting, what you're up against. But if you're like me, you just want that to be over. Can I just be done with that? I don't want to feel it. I don't really want to do the work. I'd rather just fix it do something that feels like I can control it and go back to some version of normal. I'd rather be comfortable. And naming that is important. It makes sense that that would be our first response. We do not need to shame ourselves for that. But we can't stop there. Maybe you're here this morning and your sense is, I think I might need a literal rite of passage experience. Is there somebody that would take me out into the wilderness because I need some of that. A tangible way to mark the season, to move from one reality to the other, to let something die so that something else can grow. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're in the wilderness right now. I know I am. Which means you're not alone. Maybe everything that you thought was stable and secure isn't, and now you don't know which way is up. Do not run from that place. Don't turn the stones into bread just so you don't have to be hungry. The feelings that you're having are important and you cannot move on until you've learned what they have to teach you. Or maybe you've just been avoiding the desert for a really long time. You have a sense of what's out there, but you've just very logically gone, nope. I'm good right here. Why is that? 
What is it in you that wants to keep this illusion of safety going? And what might you discover about yourself on the other side of that? The invitation is to life, a life after death, through the pain, through the suffering, through the wilderness. May you have the courage to say yes, what it wants to teach you. Let's pray. Father, life is hard. We are not in control and we are going to die. And Lord, when we come across the wilderness and the desert, we want out. And we acknowledge that and lay that at your feet. Because we know that until we do that, there's no ability to move forward. And so as a community, Lord, we ask that we would be a people who, when confronted with the desert, that we would allow it to do its work on us, that we would meet you there, that we would learn from the pain and the suffering, the doubt, the questions, the hunger, that we'd resist the temptation to turn bread into stones or vice versa. that we don't just look for the quick fix so that we can be those who transform our pain so that we can be a healing presence in our world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.